You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Our guest on Preaching Source today is Dr. Darren Biles, and uh, Dr. Biles is on our faculty here in the School of Preaching. He's a professor of preaching and pastoral ministries. He's also the director of our professional uh, doctoral programs here at Southwestern. Uh, A lot of our Doctor of Ministry students come to know Dr. Biles very well. Uh, In addition to 12 years of experience here at Southwestern, he has 15 years of experience uh, as a pastor in Texas churches. So, uh, Dr. Biles, we are delighted to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Mostly, we're going to be talking about preaching and the prophets today. So, let me begin by asking, uh, do you have any initial uh, words of encouragement or caution for preachers as they're embarking on the task of preaching the prophetic genre of Scripture? One of the reasons that I encourage guys to preach the prophets is prophets were preachers, and their message is timelessly relevant. You will find uniquenesses among the prophets that you find among preachers today. They were normal people. Some of them were stately like Isaiah, some of them were plain-spoken like Amos, and some were kind of strange like Ezekiel. And, and you see their idiosyncrasies come out in their, prophes- their prophecies, their messages, but we see them as preachers, so their message is, is immediately relevant. We see their passion coming out, the emotion that we find in the prophets, and so uh, what we what we understand from these prophets is they're men who were tasked from God with a message about God for God's people. And so when you read them, you read them as immediately relevant that the, the issues that they address are really issues that, that affect all of us, that even in our time today, we can, we can relate to the things that they were talking about. Mm. What, what's the most challenging thing about preaching from the prophets? I think maybe one of the most challenging things that I that I want to encourage guys about is is dealing with the context. I, I think uh, there's a temptation when you deal with the prophets to skip past the difficulties of the context and get immediately to the application. Um, uh, obviously, there are a number of issues related to the understanding of the context, the, the difficulties of time and language and culture and context and genre. But when you're talking about the prophetic context, it's, it's complicated. Uh, so the only way to understand Isaiah is to understand the culture of the 8th century B.C., and his message and what's going on in the 8th century that distinguishes his message from Jeremiah in the 7th century. And here's where the complication comes in, because you've got names and dates and countries and cultures, and the only way to understand that is I need to know when they spoke. I need to know what was the issue. Uh, R.B.Y. Scott talks about the crisis of the prophet. What's the issue, the crisis that he's addressing? And I need to know who's his audience. The struggle is how much information is relevant for my sermon? How how much needs to come out in the message uh, so that it doesn't become only a lecture about 8th century and the culture of 8th century and and you can kind of see people's eyes glaze over because of all the complicated names and dates. 
So, so it's vital to know that context, but not all that I know is relevant for the message. I once had a parishioner uh, tell me, say, Pastor, you give us a lot of information, but a lot of times in the introduction you sound like a commentary. <laughs> and it stung, but that parishioner was right. And, I, <laughs> and there's so much of that that is necessary, and, and maybe one of the best lessons I learned in, in preaching class was not everything that I learned from the commentary in my study is relevant in the message. Wow. That's uh, now that's a good word for for preachers, uh, Doctor Biles. Your uh, part of your background, academic background, is Old Testament. So I've I've been eager to to ask you this question: uh, as we teach guys to preach the various genre of, uh, of scripture, uh, when you're dealing with a narrative, we tell uh, uh, pastors, "Hey, look at the scenes and and the characters and what's happening in the scenes." And a lot of times, scene by scene will be the structure for your sermon. Uh, in the New Testament and the uh, epistles, we're teaching them to look at the underlying Greek uh, clausal structure uh, with poetry, which much of prophecy is in poetic form. We're teaching them to look at the underlying uh, Hebrew poetic structure, the strophe and the stanzas. Are, are there other grammatical clues? I mean, like I would do, uh, if I'm preaching through Colossians, I'd do a, a, a Greek clausal structural outline of the book. Are there uh, 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 grammatical linguistic clues beyond just strophe and stanzas that, that guys ought to look for in the prophets? Yeah, it's a good question, and it is part of the uniqueness of Old Testament prophecy Prophecy has some narrative component, and you certainly need to understand the narrative that's going on, but it also has the uniqueness of Hebrew poetry, and poetry is just complicated. It's unique. In and of itself, poetry is complicated. It has different rules in Hebrew. It has different punctuation. It has different accent marks, and all those are unique in Hebrew, added to just the uniqueness of understanding poetry. Um, parallelism that is so common in Hebrew poetry where one line is parallel to another or perhaps antithetical or figures of speech. So the Lord says in in Zechariah chapter 2 verse 5, I will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem. Well, it may be that God's going to be a literal wall of fire around the city, but probably the figure of speech there is describing the Lord's protection. And so the uniqueness of the poetry or the simile or the metaphor, so you see the, the Hebrew word key, like, or other words that are similar to that as, uh, he will be like a tree firmly planted, the psalmist says, which is totally different from... The psalmist saying their throat is an open grave. It's still a comparison. It's just a different way of, of, of doing that kind of comparison. Or when Isaiah says in Isaiah 1, if the Lord had not left us a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the comparison there, the simile there that's, that's relevant, or in Hosea when the Lord compares himself to a moth. And that metaphor is, is relevant to that to the understanding of that passage, and you see a number of things like that. You see common in, in, in uh, Hebrew uh, poetry is, is a wordplay. One of, one of my favorites is in Jeremiah chapter 1, where God is calling Jeremiah, and you get down to verses 10 through 12, and, and you've just had the commissioning of the prophet Jeremiah, and God gives him a message, and he looks over there, and he points to the woods, and, and, and he says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And 
Jeremiah says, I, I see an almond tree. And, and in our English translation, the Lord says something like, well, good, I, I'm watching over my word to perform it. And in the English, it sounds interesting. Uh, it, it just misses some of the, the, the force of the Hebrew because the Hebrew is a wordplay. And, and the word for almond tree in Hebrew is shakhed. And so God says to Jeremiah, what do you see? I see a shakhed. And the word for I'm watching is the Hebrew word shoked. So God says, what do you see? I see a shakhed. And God says, every time you see a shakhed, you know I'm a shoked. I'm watching over my word to perform it. And that word play is the force. It's the, it's the impact of that message. And so when I'm unpacking the Hebrew prophets, I'm looking for those word plays, which are, common, are complicated in all poetry, but it's even more intricate in, in, in prophecy because prophecy, unlike a hymn, are messages with an immediate context. So, for example, when you read the Psalms, many of the Psalms are, are just songs about God that, that have a general context relevant to any particular time. Prophecy has an immediate message. And so when I'm reading that poetry or whatever form that prophecy is, I'm looking for not just the, the poetic unit, I'm looking for the immediate message, the immediate application. So preaching pericopes in, in the prophets are, are different. I'm looking for units. Um, it, it may be multiple paragraphs. Um, imperatives are still significant in the prophets, but they don't form the same function as they do in New Testament letters. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking for those keys in the wordplay, in the poetry, in the nuance that really helps me get the force of what I think the, the, the text is communicating. Mm. Now, now I, I think we ought to be aware of, beware of, of turning sermons into Greek or Hebrew grammar lessons, but uh, as you just lay, as I'm just listening to you lay out that wordplay between shakhed and shokhed here, I'm thinking, wow, that would be a great illustration. I, I think that might be a good example of when you would actually give the person in the pew uh, a deep insight into something. I mean, I, that, it's, it's two words. It's Hebrew. It's enough Hebrew, I think, that it would give a good illustration for the guy in the pew. I think that's, I think that's well said. In general, uh, I, I teach in the classroom, in general, people don't want to know Hebrew and Greek. They want to know that you know it, but they don't really want to know it. But, but at, at times, I think it is so key, it is so significant, that you can, you can throw something like that in there. In the original, this is what this means, can sometimes be sufficient— at other times, though, I think in, in this case in, in Jeremiah 1, just, just a simple uh, a demonstration of the, of the impact of that word, I think, helps. Mm. Well, I mean, I find an illustration like that more interesting than a poem about footprints on the beach. <laughs> yes. But, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, one of the other difficulties in, in approaching the prophets and trying to bridge the gap between the time of the prophet and the, the folks who are sitting down to hear you on a Sunday morning uh, is, I mean, I'm, I'm not bottled up uh, in, in, a, in a siege in the city of Jerusalem, or I'm not sitting by the rivers of Babylon, uh, and neither are, are my listeners. So uh, 
one of the things I've often heard preachers and teachers of preachers say is, uh, well, find the principle that's in the text and preach the principle. But uh, is that a good rule uh, and approach, or is it sometimes a good rule, and sometimes should we be cautious of that, finding the principle in the text? I think that's a good way of saying it. I think in general it's, it can be a good rule, but it's not an excuse for lazy exegesis. The, the danger is you abandon too quickly what the text meant in a hurry to get to what we think the text means. And, and I think that can be not just an excuse for, for, uh, for sloppy exegesis. It can really miss what I think is the impact of the passage. Uh, I, do, uh, I do, in general, like the theory of principalizing a text where we're looking for um, enduring ethical or spiritual, doctrinal, moral truths that, that apply in our context. So, for example, it might go something like this. I, I want to look at what this text meant in its context. Uh, what are the issues that are being addressed in that text? And then how are those issues relevant today? What principles can we learn from that passage that are still relevant? For example, uh, a, a really good picture of this is in Jeremiah chapter 22. This is an interesting passage. Jeremiah addresses three different kings. He addresses Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim, uh, three successive, all relatively short-reigning kings, and Jeremiah addresses each of them in this one chapter. In this passage, especially in verses 13 down through 16, he's talking about the issue of poverty, a social issue of dealing with the poor. How do we handle the issues of poverty? And in this case, they were taking advantage of the poor in the court systems. They showed a lack of concern for the poor uh, in, in general as far as fair wages, this particular passage points out. Well, there's an enduring principle there about dealing with those in need. Um, and so there, I think there is a relevant application for how do we take care of those in need? How do we face issues of poverty in the world around us? What's an appropriate way, not just in fair wages, not just dealing with injustice, but how do we take care of people in need? And so I think there are some issues where we can see principles. I just want us to make sure that we're doing good exegesis. So all of this grows out of our context. For example, uh, Obadiah is prophesying around the same time as Jeremiah, but they're writing to two different audiences. Obadiah is writing to Edom, and Jeremiah is writing to Judah. Uh, Obadiah is dealing with the issue of how do I uh, rejoice, or do I rejoice, over someone else's misfortune? Well, there's a principle there that I don't rejoice in someone else's sorrow, um, but I need to make sure I fit it in the appropriate context so that I know that my application is, in fact, relevant to the application that was intended in that text. Um, one of the things that all of us uh, at Southwestern teach our students when preaching the Old Testament is to, uh, to preach Christ uh, from the Old Testament, and Messianic prophecies are an obvious place where we can do that, and yet uh, those messianic prophecies often have an immediate application in Israel's history. How you have any guidance for us on how do we balance those two things? How, how are we true to the full meaning of the text? All right, I think that's a great question. There are some prophetic passages that are clearly messianic. So 
when you read Isaiah 7 or 9 or 53, you know you're dealing with some prophetic passages, Jeremiah 31, Hosea 11, Micah 5, Zechariah 9, even Ezekiel 34 to some, uh, to some extent are messianic passages. Uh, you see some in the Psalm, Psalm 2, 22, 110, 118. These are messianic passages. For me, what makes a passage messianic is the use of it in the New Testament. If the New Testament does not clearly or specifically point to an Old Testament passage as messianic, I want to be careful in claiming what the Bible does not state. So first of all, I want to make sure I'm dealing with a messianic passage. I don't want to force Jesus into a text when he's not clearly present in there. I, I do want to preach Jesus from the Old Testament, but I want to preach him appropriately. So I'm not looking for Jesus under every rock or or every every picture that I see in the Old Testament where he is clearly there. I want to explicitly point that out. Um, but at the same time, other passages may teach me things about a life that's consistent with walking with Christ. What attribute of Christ can I learn from this text and apply to my life? And others, as you mentioned, um, uh, move into a category of what I would call progressive revelation. For example, the, the example that you mentioned, just, or, or example that I mentioned from Isaiah 7, there is an immediate application to Isaiah 7. Isaiah is talking to Ahaz, and Ahaz is struggling with a decision that he's got to make right now. Uh, he's, it's a complicated text. Of, it's a coalition that's forming to, to uh, work against Assyria, and, and are we going to join this Syro-Ephraimitic coalition? And he's struggling, and so uh, the prophet Isaiah says, well, ask God for a sign. And, and Ahaz says, well, I'm not, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And so Isaiah says, well, a sign will be given to you. Virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, Ahaz was struggling with an immediate decision, and, and it wouldn't make a lot of sense in the context of Isaiah 7 if Isaiah was saying to him, now Ahaz, 750 years from now, there's going to be a virgin and she's going to give birth to a baby, and that's really going to make sense for you, and you'll know what you need to do now, 750 years from now. I don't think that makes sense. I think there was an immediate application and I think Isaiah 8 explains that. Now, Matthew chapter 2 comes back later, and we understand uh, that, that the, the fullness of that revelation in Christ. You see that in Hosea 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, when Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 uses that verse, it uses it differently, uh, referring to Christ coming out of Egypt versus the nation of Israel. So I, I think you see some of those things of, of a progressive nature of revelation that uh, uh, I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm being a good student of, of the text so that I don't want to presume uh, on something that the Bible didn't say. Uh, God's very capable of saying what he wanted to say. Um, but when I see some evidence from the text of a clear progression, that's to me, I think, the most appropriate way of, 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 of explaining both how the message points to Christ and how it fits in its immediate context. Mm. I'm just happy to find a reason to use the term Cyril Ephraimitic uh, coalition. You. You, can take that. <laughs> you can use that. So, um, now, I've, I have always thought if, if I find an Old Testament passage 
quoted in the New Testament, then I always figure I'm on safe ground. Is, I mean, is that a good rule? That's that the rule you, that I follow. Okay. Uh, if, if I see a clear link from a New Testament text to an Old Testament, I, I, I can see that as a foreshadowing uh, of, of, of that or a progressive revelation. If it's not there, I, I want to be careful in saying that passage is specifically referring to Jesus. If the New Testament author, authors didn't claim that, I need, to, uh, I need to be careful there because I may not be on solid ground. Uh, again, God's capable of speaking for himself, and so I don't want to infer something that, that uh, God didn't intend for me to see there. Mm. Uh, Dr. Bowser, what other resources w- would you recommend to uh, preachers who are wanting to preach from prophetic text? There are some really good books that I have in my library that I recommend that you, that every student of Scripture should uh, in some way use in their library. Some general related to the Old Testament exegesis. For example, I like Douglas Stewart's book, Old Testament Exegesis, and that's a handy work to walk through some of the intricacies of the text. Or if you want to get into something a little bit more specific to Hebrew, I recommend Scott Gibson's book, Preaching the Old Testament. And he talks about some of the uniquenesses of preaching Hebrew and the Hebrew text, or Robert Chisholm's book, From Exegesis to Exposition. Those are grammatical works that deal with how to use Hebrew. Uh, I like some works related to the preaching of the prophets. For example, Gary Smith's book, Interpreting the Prophetic Books. This is in uh, uh, Kriegel's series, uh, Handbooks for Old Testament Exegesis. I like that one, The Interpreting of the Prophetic Books. Kaiser's book, Preaching and Teaching from the Old Testament, is a good source. Uh, I especially like that chapter on, uh, on, on prophecy. This is a new book from one of our colleagues from Southern Seminary, Peter Gentry. It came out this year, uh, How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets. Peter Gentry is a work that I like. Uh, um, for uh, uh, a different kind of work, Christopher Wright's book, How to Preach and Teach the Old Testament for All It's Worth, is a, is a work that I like. Uh, I'm a fan of Gridanus's book, The Modern Preacher in the Ancient Text, is a work that I specifically like for his section on prophets. Uh, and there are some others that I recommend, but these are works that, that I think will, will be helpful for you. There's an older book, uh, by R.B.Y. Scott, The Relevance of the Prophets, uh, that, that's sort of a standard in this field, and, and I go back to that just to kind of see the wisdom that he has there. Mm. Uh, have, we, have, have we had you put something in print yet for Preaching Source as a bibliography that you— boy, you've mentioned about a dozen books here. No, uh, but I'd love to do that. I, all right, we, we, we'll do that. So I'll tell our listeners to either— by the time they hear this podcast, it might either be up, uh, uh, but if not, we'll, uh, we're going to have Dr. Biles uh, put something a bibliography uh, for Preaching the Prophets up on Preaching Source here. Uh, in addition to these works, uh, you ought to also check out Dr. Biles' own recently released book from Broadman and Holman, uh, Pastoral Ministry. Uh, and speaking of resources, uh, some of you preachers out there ought to think about coming and doing a Doctor of Ministry uh, program with us, uh, or maybe a PhD in preaching. And Dr. Darren Biles, our guest on Preaching Source today, is one of the great 
professors that you can sit under and learn from here at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, Brother Darren, thanks for being with us today. Great privilege for me. Thank you for inviting me.